Most afternoons, Selma Miriam holds court in the dining room of a wood-shingled building on the water in Bridgeport, Connecticut. She's 87 years old, and this is exactly where she wants to be, sharing recipes or in deep conversation with a fascinating stranger who's just walked in the front door. A couple feet away, her friend Noel Fury bakes bread and flurries about the kitchen. For more than 40 years, Selma and Noel have spent their days like this at the Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant and Bookstore. It began as a place where women came from all over the world to gather, share ideas, and share meals. And people definitely still come for those reasons. The food sounds incredible. But they also come for Selma and Noel. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give it to Selma to start off. You know, if you want me to say more on the subject, you tell me or tell her, and she'll pass it to me like that. Would that work? That works perfect. Okay. And if you hear something that Selma's saying and you have something to add? I, I'll pull on her sleeve and say, let me talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here she is. I'm Sarah Wyman. This is Atlas Obscura. And today, we go to the Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant and Bookstore. It's one of the only surviving feminist bookstores in the United States. And it's a place that thoroughly reflects the two women who built it. We we don't make any money here, really, to speak of. And, you know, sometimes it's a little upsetting that, on the other hand, it's not why we opened a restaurant. It wasn't to get rich. It was to live how we wanted to live. How they wanted to live after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975, to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Okay. So you tell me what you want to learn about us. Yeah. Well, first of all, since you are sitting in Bloodroot and I am not, can you put me there in the room with you? What does it look like? Oh, okay. So it's an old warehouse which didn't have a kitchen and the view from the windows is of Long Island Sound. So it's very, very pretty. Selma is sitting in a big, high-ceilinged room. Around her, there are at least a dozen mismatched wooden tables and chairs. Now, up in the ceiling, we've got a lot of things hanging down. We don't do it now, but we were weavers. I'm a knitter, spinner, all that stuff. We went to India and picked out fabrics 
and came back and hung them from the ceiling. And we were trying to think, instead of thinking the way folks do about what customers would like, we were thinking about what would express what we felt. It's funny, listening to you talk about the restaurant, it reminds me of hearing somebody talk about decorating their own home. Right. Yeah, well, we felt very much that way. We didn't want it to feel like, you know, kind of official place. We want it to feel like what we would want if we went out to a restaurant. And, uh, you know, we don't rush people. They can sit for a while. And all these chairs and tables, it just, it all has a lot of character. That's really what it's about. The kitchen is shaped like an octagon with a 70s-style service hatch window that looks out onto the big room. One of the long walls is windowless, but it's completely covered with frames. There are four or five old mirrors that look like self-portraits when you stare into them. And they're surrounded by other portraits, dozens and dozens of framed black-and-white photographs. So the pictures on the wall... We decided they would be all of women, okay, because this is a feminist restaurant. They're all of women and some babies and some women who, when they worked here and left, gave us their picture as a child. There's a couple of pictures of cats because we like cats. Uh, And, all right, Noel wants to tell you something about the pictures. Here. Well, I have to tell you my fantasy about them, Sarah. And sometimes I come in, and I'm the first one here. It's very quiet. I open the door, and I look at the photographs, and I'm just certain as can be that they've all been talking about us all night long. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's the kind of energy that comes from them in the morning, first thing, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> isn't, isn't, that, isn't that something? I, I really get a charge fairly regularly out of that. And so here's Selma. I just want you to know that little story. <laughs> Thank you. Noel and Selma first met in 1972. They were both married at the time, to men. They both had kids. And one night, they both ended up at a rap meeting for the National Organization for Women, or as it's more commonly known, NOW. Rap groups were small, grassroots meetings, most often between suburban housewives. They brought women together, which in and of itself was radical at the time. But more than that, they were a tool for advancing women's liberation in concrete ways— The feminist scholar Joe Freeman described what went on at a rap group this way. The process is very simple. Women come together in groups of 5 to 15 and talk to each other about their personal problems, personal experiences, personal feelings, and personal concerns. From this public sharing of experiences comes the realization that what was thought to be individual is in fact common, that what was thought to be a personal problem has a social cause and probably a political solution. So going all the way back to that first meeting, the rap meeting with NOW, I mean, what brought both of you to that meeting? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I just always went. (laughs) She's making motions at me, so let me let... You wanted to know what brought me to the meeting of the NOW chapter? In a literal or, you know, metaphysical sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'll tell you. Uh, A young woman that was a a friend of mine who had actually babysat for my two children told me about this meeting and said, Noel, you've got to go. And at that point, my children were very young. And uh, and I said, I don't know how to do that, you know, because I was kind of a classic 
housewife, and I didn't just leave my children on a Saturday afternoon with my husband, but she convinced me to do it. And and when I got there, I'll tell you, I took a deep breath, and I thought, this is where I belong. I mean, right away, I felt that I saw all these women sitting around and really comfortable with themselves, and I hadn't been all up up till that time, and it seemed like there's some kind of answer here for me. You know, we talked about everything, and the interesting thing was that we discovered that so many of our grievances were not personal. They were political. It was the fact of our particular situation as wives, mothers, and women in the culture at that time. And we'd find that thread kind of running through for all the women in the rap groups. And so it relieved, well, for me, it relieved a lot of guilt because I always felt it was my fault that I wasn't happy. From there, we needed to go ahead with our lives and do something that was consonant with what we believed in. My ex-husband, there's no way I could have been a vegetarian and live in the same house with him because he wouldn't have tolerated it. So I needed to go someplace where I could be a vegetarian and live my values. And Selma, luckily, <laughs> I mean, I, was, I feel that's one of the most fortunate moments of my life is when I met her. And, you know, I think a lot about fate and circumstance and luck and all that and what changes your life and and that certainly changed my life entirely that that moment and brought brought me here noel and selma both became involved in the women's liberation movement they left their husbands they dated each other briefly and in 1977 they opened bloodroot together where did that come from the name bloodroot okay so it's a new england wildflower it has a very pretty white flower and I just felt there was a, a lot of meaning to it. And then, of course, when people got really squinchy about it, you know, uh, oh, God, blood, you know. And then I got uh, really, you know, pissed. And and I figured, okay, they're worried about menstruation. Well, it's too damn bad. Okay. And I kept Bloodroot. When Bloodroot opened, it became part of a growing movement of feminist restaurants in the United States. Professor Alex Ketchum at McGill University has compiled a list of these spaces, including Bloodroot, and her research suggests there may at one point have been as many as 400 explicitly feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses in the U.S. and Canada. These were places often founded by women's collectives, where women and lesbians in particular could meet up, politically organize, or even just enjoy meals together in a safe environment. At Bloodroot, that last bit was crucial. Selma and Noel knew from the beginning they wanted their food to be a center point. They also stocked their bookshelves with feminist books. They played feminist music. There was a very big amount of excitement about feminism then. And indeed, in December, when nobody came to eat, people came and bought books. Books were cheaper in those days, and they dropped like $200 pre-Christmas. So buying books for all their friends. But Selma and Noel's ideals also became the foundation for the business. Bloodroot started out as a collective. Before long, the menu became vegetarian, then vegan. And Noel and Selma also knew they didn't want waitresses to be objectified or treated badly at Bloodroot. And they didn't want them to have to rely on tips to make a living. So that's when we decided, well, let's see what happens if we ask people to serve themselves. And it was the most wonderful thing that we decided because we really learned to meet the people who were our customers in a very egalitarian way. There are no chefs at Bloodroot. There's no hierarchy. 
From the beginning, women came from all over the world to cook in Bloodroot's kitchen. They shared their recipes with Noel and Selma, taught them how to cook beans in a clay pot, how to make jerk chicken out of seitan. And in 1977, everything about the whole concept of Bloodroot was radical. I mean, this was the same year it became legal for women to take action against workplace sexual harassment. The same year the first women were admitted to Harvard. Women had only recently gotten the right to get a credit card in their own name. Just six years earlier, unmarried women couldn't go on the pill. You know, Sarah, the other thing that I wanted to talk about just briefly, and it's sort of really out of the subject right now, but about the bread. Yes. Bloodroot is full of big ideas, but also... Let us not forget about the bread. Even radical feminists have got to eat. You know, I've been doing it a long time, but just recently we came upon this uh, process in which you cook some of the flour ahead of time in the liquid that goes in the bread, and you put it into the bread batter. And it makes the bread fabulous. I mean, I have to say fabulous. It keeps it moist and changes the flavor to be even better. And every time I make it, I get really excited and then look in the oven and you think, oh, my gosh, is it going to rise again? And you know what? It does. And I'm like, every time I'm surprised. And it's this living force that I had something to do with. And, and, you know, Selma, all this stuff that I know about the bread, I learned from Selma. I took all the things that she, over the years, all the experiments and changes in the recipes and the like. And I've got the sum total of all of that to make the bread now. And, and it's really great. I'll take a picture of it when it comes out of the oven. I'll send it to you. Please do. Also, I'm about to say something really corny, but I love that the bread is a metaphor, but also it's delicious. And those two things are equally important, you know? Oh, absolutely. Everything has got to be delicious. I really feel that very, very strongly because anybody who comes here, hold on, Carol, would you just turn it off? I'll be back in a minute. Anybody who comes here, say it's the first time they come. If they have something they don't think is delicious, they might not come back. I don't want to lose anybody to a mediocre meal. I tell people now we're artifacts because <laughs> we've been here so long and we're... Oh, I'm sorry. I, uh, someone wanted to hear me. I was turned away. I tell people that we're artifacts. That's what I said. And, uh, you know, we've been really fortunate to be able to spend all our last 45 years doing things that we believe in. Of all the feminist bookstores, restaurants, and cafes that got their start in the 70s and 80s, Bloodroot is one of the only ones left. 45 years is a long time for any restaurant to stay open. And for Bloodroot, that feels especially high stakes. It isn't just an artifact. It's a movement that Selma and Noel have managed to keep alive. One day, when they're gone, it's not clear what will happen to this place. You know, a lot of people ask us this, and I really don't know. I figure when I know, I will know, but I don't know. Uh, I'm not doing much work at all. I spent a lot of last year in the hospital and such, and, uh, and I don't have energy. But every single night that I come in here, I meet someone, somebody new, somebody old, uh, who is just so interesting to talk to. And, you know, in the beginning, we had no idea we'd be here for 45 years. It was really day-to-day, do the cooking, you know, greet the people, serve the food, all of that work. And anyway, personally, I did not think about, oh, my goodness, where is this going? How long will we be here? We just did it. We just lived our lives. 
and it has brought us, as uh, Holly Near says, brilliantly to here. My past has brought me brilliantly to here, and I just love that thought, and that's exactly what it is. Bloodroot is open for dinner Tuesday through Friday every week, and lunch and dinner on Saturdays. If you want to stop by and meet Selma and Noel, let them know that we say hi. And if you want to learn more about the history of feminist restaurants and cafes, or Dr. Alex Ketchum and her project Identifying and Mapping Them, you can visit the link in our show notes. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was edited by Tracy Samuelson. With production help from Ellie Katz. Our production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Tanaka Maria Muvabadidwa, Gianna Palmer, Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed and mixed by John Delore. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Sarah Wyman. Thanks so much for listening. Okay. Bye. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.